and for uh, the smallest amount of money, you could get a bottle of this sugar water. So I gave the man there in this small tent, moths were flipping and flying and like frogs. Frog moths were pulling themselves out of the earth and flying up in front of the stand. Dust was blowing. It was like a, a, a mysterious, strange wind sound. And out came a tiniest little copper coin that I'd gotten somewhere, and I gave it to this man. I gave the man the coin. He gave me a bottle of, I don't know if I got violet sugar water or what. I got this bottle. And in addition, I got a paper, a piece of paper money, four inches by three inches. The most beautiful, intricately designed, gold and green and blue, red, a piece of paper money and the bottle for just giving him this small copper coin. Welcome to Twin Peaks Rewatch. From Idle Thumbs, I'm Chris Remo. I'm Jake Rodkin. This week on Rewatch, we are taking a break to discuss the state of Twin Peaks The Return so far. Yep. And I guess not just Twin Peaks The Return, but maybe the series as a whole and episode eight and anything else that seems um, relevant. We have a lot of email that our readers wrote in with. We have... Um, forum posts that you have, Jake, to mm-hmm. um, read from the Twin Peaks Rewatch forums, and we're going to be uh, sharing a lot of thoughts. And if you send an email or post it on the forums and we don't address it here, I'm sorry, we got way more uh, correspondence than we can possibly read. I did read all of it. Yeah, but... you mean then we can read on the air? Yes, yes. I did. Yes, that's exactly right. I, re- I did read all of it, but we can't share it all on this podcast or the podcast would be many hours long. So uh, we've, we've blown this some. out from an original nine <laughs> uh, episode podcast to an 18 episode <laughs> podcast just to, to fill in a bunch of email. Mm-hmm. I'm going to spend the first uh, 37 minutes of this episode reading one email, uh, which to which I will allow no responses. Oh, no. Sorry about it. Ignore that. That was just my little sound design <laughs> tweak. Uh, <laughs> all right. You want to read an email? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Chase Cook says, Hey guys, love the show. I wanted to ask, what were your expectations for this season? I've seen so much discussion on the internet waiting for this show to be Twin Peaks again. It's obvious after part eight, the Twin Peaks we know will never come back. The original show is an amalgamation of directors, writers, and creative conflict. Lynch only directed six of 30 episodes. Do you think the Twin Peaks we're getting now is always what Frost and Lynch envisioned, and those of us looking for the same kooky show should appreciate the return on its own merits? I think I can. While I'm d- disappointed it isn't a continuation of the same show, I do miss Battlementi's presence, I sure as hell can appreciate a visionary director and veteran writer giving free reign to shock and awe. Chase Cook, Annapolis, Maryland. When you said free reign to shock and awe, I thought you said Jacques, and I was very confused <laughs> as to where that email was Free reign to Jacques Renault. Buckle in. <laughs> this is why they had to blow out the season. We're just going to get a bunch of close-ups of his mouth saying, bite the bullet, etc. for the rest of it. <laughs> I don't think there's any way to know. I don't think it necessarily matters whether this is the show that Frost and Lynch always envisioned. I doubt it is. It's hard to imagine that the thing that they envisioned more than 25 years ago would just happen to be the exact thing they're still interested in making decades later. That seems unlikely. Um, but But yeah, it's definitely true that the Twin Peaks we remember is just not the one they're making now. Um, and, I don't know what my expectations were. I don't think I would have had any way to form expectations. I will say that probably like a lot of people, certainly not all people, but I would venture to say maybe even most, I did expect more of the running time to be concerned with characters from Twin Peaks. Yeah. I, I One of the few things that I read before the season started was people either from Showtime or people in the cast or or production crews saying, basically, brace yourself for Twin Peaks, the the city, to be less of a character. Mm. But I had still thought, I think, then, okay, well, if Twin Peaks itself is going to be less of a thing and this is going to be a, like, across the United States experience, that's probably because, like, Dale Cooper is going to be there. Right. You know, like, I always, even even every time that it was like, oh, well, if it's not going to be like that, 
I, that's probably because this other traditional thing that I expect will fill that gap. Yeah. Um, in in broad strokes, I mean, I think I don't know if we talked about it on the podcast, but I I think when we were ex- getting excited for season three to come on, the thing you and I both seemed to have said was, I don't even care. Well, geez, I just put words in your mouth. Maybe you maybe you strongly disagree with me, but I I, I felt that. I didn't even care necessarily if if at the end of the day I like liked the show. I didn't care if it was a mm-hmm. quote unquote good show as long as I was seeing something interesting. And that's admittedly very low expectations to have. Like I coming it's not, off it's not very low entering it. I mean I don't think that's low expectations because I, I think at at this point I think and Twin Peaks is a notable, very notable exception to this, the standard approach to television revivals is almost the opposite of what you said, which is desperate for you to like it, mortgaging any potential interesting choices. You know, like the, yeah. um, this season is utterly the opposite. It is essentially entirely interesting choices, whether or not you like any of them. Um, and I think that I think that while that is weird and can be challenging at times, I think in the long run will be appreciated and something that is, um, we will be glad to have. Like people are not going to remember Chris Carter's recent season of the X-Files. Exactly. Or his next season of the Or his next season of the X-Files, right, or whatever, you know, Arrested Development season four or whatever. Yeah, yeah, exactly. When people talk about the X-Files, when people talk about Arrested Development, they maybe they are thinking about those seasons, but that's not the ones that everyone is like, oh, right. And that may be true of Twin, Pe- Twin Peaks as well. But when you talk about Twin Peaks, you have to you. It is necessary from this point on that you take into account the third season that, you know, that that is. There's, it, yeah, there's going to be fans forever who don't. I think the same way as there are people who just throw a fire walk with me in the trash as far as their uh, regard for what Twin Peaks yeah. is. Like the thing about, for instance, not to just keep talking about Arrested Development and the X-Files, <laughs> but those seasons are both not that interesting, but also not different enough. As you get farther and farther into history and the farther we get from the entirety of Twin Peaks as opposed to, you know, like... This is ridiculous, but in 100 years, the <laughs> fact that it's well, there were only 20 years between seasons between seasons of Twin Peaks will matter less than it does exactly now. Right. And I think that those things will grow closer together. Whereas, like the fourth Indiana Jones movie, which is just a bad Indiana Jones movie compared to the previous three, mm-hmm. kind of falls off over right. time as yeah. opposed to gets closer stuck together. Yeah. And, I, and I, that like that was my hope for Twin Peaks, whatever it was was that it would sort of add to the conversation around Twin Peaks instead of detract from it. And I mm-hmm. think that the show has added to it. I but think yeah, that's right. Yeah, I totally did think that there would be more Cooper in it, though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, all right, so on a, on a similar note, Brooke writes, Thanks so much for the podcast. It's turned into a huge component of how I've begun watching Season 3. I have a question about the season as a whole. There's been a tonal shift, I think, where the transitions between scenes and filmic techniques is much more pastiche. The abrupt music cues for Ike the Spike Stadler, the jump to the day is night scene that hasn't recurred, the throwback to the original Twin Peaks with Bobby seeing Laura Palmer's picture, Wally Brando in general, etc. But this is also contradicted by how each storyline is a super simple straight line and very slow moving. Original Twin Peaks, excluding Fire Walk With Me, always felt like David Lynch playing with TV as a formal constraint and TV watching as a theme with respect to Invitation to Love. And I wonder if Season 3 fits into that idea at all. How do you think Season 3's form and content related to previous Twin Peaks? Is this a continuation of old Twin Peaks impulses, a newer approach, a departure? Does Season 3 want to move beyond television? Thanks, Brooke. I think just one point, and this is a thing that we talk about a little bit on the show, um attributing all of that to David Lynch is just the shorthand. And I know that's probably not what Brooke meant to do, but saying that like Lynch probably was less interested in invitation to love and as in deconstructing soap operas as Mark Frost is, Mm -hmm. it seems to me personally and like this may be totally incorrect, but it seems like this season is of just a completely different sort of cocktail of a collaboration between Mark Frost and David Lynch than the previous se- than then seasons one and two. I mean, at least the episodes that Frost and Lynch worked on right. together in those seasons, like it, those felt so much more to me, like within a single page of script and a single minute of television, you were seeing both of their 
sensibilities blended together really aggressively. And this season three feels like they're both present, but it's like they're just far more separate. Like the, the, the overall structure of the script and even sort of the way that it's plotted out it within a scene feels to me more like the things that I associate with Mark Frost's sensibility. And then the actual execution of it on screen feels like David Lynch basically just uncut David Lynch. Mm-hmm. That's an obvious thing to say because that's literally what the production process was. Right. They co-wrote, they co-wrote right. the story and it seems like you can just feel Mark Frost's hands at the keys of the script and then David Lynch shot it without Mark Frost there really. Did you read Reflections, the oral history of Twin Peaks, that book? Uh, not all of it. I read okay. parts of it. It's it's interesting because the first season of Twin Peaks actually sounds like it was it was produced like Twin Peaks season one is credited with sort of the birth of modern television in a bunch of ways and sort of like the the sort of predecessor to the golden age of TV and it seems like the way that the first season of that show was produced was irregular but in a way that then became increasingly regular like Twin Peaks season one they had their own little weird soundstage cordoned off from everyone else the writers and pro- and production team was just on site there all the time and it Mm. felt like it was just had all of their sets in a room had the writers David Lynch and Mark Frost just seemed like they were around in the office a lot like wandering between production and editorial and it felt like or it seemed like they just built themselves a house and made Twin Peaks in it in sort of one manic spree the first season especially then put it out but like they were just there all the time revving on every single detail of the show together in the same space and this season when I think of something like Arrested Development or House of Cards or whatever, I, that's sort of the production model that I imagine that there's sort of mm-hmm. a writer's room always spinning and there's a showrunner sort of bouncing between it and the set and, and editorial. But season three of Twin Peaks feels like it threw that out. And, oh, yeah. and it feels like it must have been produced like a film. Um, I saw I recently watched some videos on uh, something a conversation with. Um, my friend David Hellman. I don't, I don't know if you know him or not. But, yeah. Um, and we were talking about what David Lynch might be like as a director. He texted me yesterday with like a YouTube video that he found that was just called David Lynch on set. And it was a, just a bunch of different clips that I assume someone, um, it was I think from a documentary that someone had uh, found a bunch of different clips of David Lynch directing actors and being on set. And uh, he's very... Um, like up in actors' faces and being very emotive and like he he really, really gets into like if he wants an actor to be anguished or angry or something, like he really pours that into them hmm. himself. And it it I, I feel like it really um when you're watching, you know, David Lynch has a lot of scenes in which actors are being very extreme beyond the audience's ability to sort of factually know exactly what's going on and you can get a sense for how and when you watch clips of david lynch on set it feels like oh this is very intentional and he, mm-hmm. he often will even literally say that he's like you don't even know why you're doing this to this degree <laughs> Crazy. but yeah and um and this season feels like to me he was able to just go f- for that to the degree that he his instinct always demands he do in film but is just unrestrained yep now on television yeah no that's that's really interesting yeah. i should watch that clip you sent it to me that i didn't watch it uh there's there are a bunch there there are a few different ones it's it's cool yeah maybe i'll put some in the in the link in the description of this uh rewatch episode all right I, and i guess by old by old hollywood movie i don't necessarily mean like explicitly the golden age of Hollywood, but I think that Hollywood films these days are produced kind of like television, where just the writer is on set. Sure, there's a the whole script is basically crew, yeah. being churned yeah. through in real time, almost yeah. like... Almost like it's are also just, massive now. Yeah. Just, yeah. This, it just, it, yeah, it seems like a, a small film production, but it feels like the creation of the story and the production of the, of the film also were split and not run through in real time the way the TV usually is. Mm-hmm. Um, here are a couple more emails, sort of, um, I guess we'll start to jump off that and uh, in, in similar thematic ground. Jim Taylor writes, The drastic tonal and stylistic differences between the original run of Twin Peaks and season three have been largely ascribed to fans and critics to three things. Lynch and Frost's evolution as filmmakers, their desire to stand out from the crowd of prestige TV shows, and the creative freedom they've been given by Showtime. Almost no mention has been made of the narrative justification for this shift in tile, tone and style. 
As has been mentioned many times before, during the original series, we mainly saw the town of Twin Peaks through the eyes of Dale Cooper, and the tone of the series reflected this. We followed him through this quirky town of lovable misfits, and then into the heart of darkness that lurked beneath its surface. Following that shattering experience, he and his world have been irrevocably changed. In season three, we are, well and, we are well and truly through the looking glass, so to speak, and the characters of Twin Peaks now inhabit a bleaker, colder, and more surreal world, Cooper's perspective having been shorn of warmth and innocence. Season three is the inevitable conclusion, narratively speaking, of pulling on those threads that the murder of Laura Palmer first brought to light. It's understandable that a lot of viewers want to return to the things they enjoyed about the first two seasons, characters, locations, and general feeling, but I think that would be artificial. There's no going back to the cozy, if eerie, vibe of the original run, where the town's brightness was threatened by patches of darkness. Things have been inverted, so now we're living in the darkness, although shafts of light remain visible. For anyone who wanted to get to the bottom of Twin Peaks Mysteries, this is where it takes you. To be clear, I'm loving these new episodes. What do you think? Cheers, Jim Taylor, Edinburgh, UK. I think that is a, uh, I mean, you know, we've discussed a lot of the differences, but I think that's a good uh, interpretation that sort of sells it, not just from the mechanical standpoint, but in the actual fiction. Yep. And I think Fire Walk With Me being sort of the inflection point that you sort of tumble through to the other side Uh of that, it totally holds. Yeah. That's that's really well put. Mm -hmm. Steven writes, I became fixated on how much episode eight felt like a mid-season finale before I knew there wasn't an episode next week and the many parallels between this and the finale of season one, also in episode eight, depending on how you count it. The first season ends with Agent Dale Cooper getting shot in the abdomen, just like Bad Coop. The first episode of season two then begins with Cooper lying on the ground and the camera angles of Bad Coop lying on the ground are extremely similar. Agent Cooper is interacting with the world's most decrepit room service waiter and then is visited by the giant. A lodge scene in the season two finale connects the waiter and the giant. And the returns, episode eight, heavily involves the giant after the shooting. The first episode of season two ends with the giant returning to Cooper while he's falling asleep, saying, you forgot something, and shooting a ball of golden light into him. Reddit has a thread on these connections with some pictures and stuff, but notably point out that the bullet that wounded Agent Dale Cooper also killed a wood tick, a parasite removed by Doc Hayward, perhaps paralleling the removal of Bob from Bad Cooper by the woodsman. It's notable that Agent Dale Cooper doesn't die, and neither does Bad Cooper. Maybe there are connections, metaphorical at least, between Josie and Ray. Thanks, Stephen from Texas. I hope that Josie and Ray are somehow connected. Yeah. Maybe Ray will end up in a in a drawer pull. Yep. Yeah, I don't have a lot of sort of um, in depth responses to that, but I thought the parallels were in- were interesting, especially the um, the golden orb thing, which a lot of people have pointed out, and which I think we neglected to remember. Yeah. Last week's episode, and also the thing with the parasite in Cooper, which is such a tiny detail that I, I had entirely forgotten about that. Yeah. That if that's a direct reference, that's very much just. I mean. Maybe there's a huge amount of of meaning behind that, but it could very easily be them kind of being stylistically cheeky with mm-hmm. Twin Peaks folding it on itself. Rewatching that clip of the golden orb in season two, though, it's amazing how much it looks like the treatment that that stuff is given in season three. I had forgotten how similar that was. Yeah. I think it's, yeah. I think that scene was in the premiere of season two, mm-hmm. which means that Lynch, di- true, Lynch yeah. directed it. And it looks like a total David Lynch lighting effect where there's just. Yes. Yeah, a lot of it's weird layered of, stuff. It's less of a sort of crystalline orb, yeah. But it, but I, it feels like it's very much, yeah. The way related. that it has the sort of the sort of golden glow that it casts yeah. on the characters and world around it as it moves feels mm-hmm. very much, yeah, of the same situation. The season one finale was, I think, the only episode that Mark Frost actually directed of Twin Peaks. Oh, Is that right? I don't recall. I know that he directed that episode. I don't yeah. know if it's the only one that he did, but it was. It was a super, super, super Mark Frost episode of Twin Peaks, if I remember correctly. That was the episode. That episode wasn't a huge, like, it wasn't a huge lore dump the way that episode eight of season three is. But it definitely was the episode that felt like the amount of information that you're receiving as an audience member suddenly just, like, kicks up and it has, you know, hits a pretty Mm -hmm. fever pitch. In that case, I think they've said that it was because... They wanted to escalate every single story arc up to the most outrageous cliffhanger they possibly could to make sure that, that season two would happen. But that episode, I just I just remember that episode being uh, an incredibly meaty Twin Peaks yeah. experience. You're, you're right. It was directed by Mark Frost, which I guess makes it the only episode of Twin Peaks to be fully credited as written and directed to one person. 
Oh, David Lynch doesn't have co-writing credit on that episode? Mm-hmm. It was written and directed by Mark Interesting. Frost. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. This episode, to me, also did feel like a mid-season finale, but yeah. obviously in Ob- a yes. very, 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 very different way. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, the through line, though, being that it felt like it was Mark Frost very excitedly outlining to us in sort of... D- gigantic buffet form his vision for what Twin Peaks is at this moment in time Mm -hmm. it's just this time uh, it's about a weird roach toad and a nuclear explosion and uh, all sorts of other stuff well speaking of those things speaking of roach toads (laughs) not actually speaking of roach toads but well actually actually yes kind of speaking of roach toads Uh, here's an email from Jessica Um, this I thought was a good Uh, A good perspective on a lot of that stuff from uh, this past episode. She says, hey, guys, here's a perspective on part eight from a gal. Be prepared for some potential discomfort, but nothing more than you'd expect at a standard OBGYN appointment. All right. (laughs) To me, the gold cloud that came out of the head of the giant, a.k.a. question marks, uh, looked a lot like a uterus. Then the golden orb that is Laura's face emerges. In the context of the eggs coming from what many are referring to as mother in the earlier scene, it seems this orb may be the egg that would become Laura. Once Senorita Dito kisses it, it is released into a tube above. Um, as it is sperm that would go up in uh, up a cervix, still it results in the pre- presence that is Laura heading to Earth. Placing the timing of the egg's arrival in 1945, that could mean that it is one of the eggs that would be in her mom, since women are born with all the eggs they will have for future reproduction. If a baby girl will, do, will were to be conceived in that year, she would be 11 in 1956, potentially the age of the young woman in the next part of the episode who could possibly be Sarah Palmer. Let me be clear. I'm not totally bought into Laura as the good knight in this battle. I'm inclined to think along the lines that that role is reserved for the cousin, the man from the other place, introduces Cheryl Lee as in season one and repeated again earlier in this season. Nevertheless, I think it would do well to maintain a filter of birth and creation for part eight in the midst of the destruction we also witnessed. Enjoying the podcast and banter, fellows. Jessica. That all totally tracks. I mm-hmm. mean, whether or not it's literally Sarah Palmer and what right. what what the little the sort of Laura egg orb means, yeah, that difficult I, to right. discern. I'm but, less interested in sort of directly mapping who and what until we because I either we're going to learn that stuff or we won't, whatever. Uh, but I think the symbolism and sort of parallels. Yeah, the the birth imagery stuff good. totally tracks. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, actually, maybe we should read some just. One of the biggest things that came up on the forum this week was what was all of this, like sort of the fallout of seeing that just the surprising appearance of Laura Palmer inside of that gold orb that then Mm -hmm. flew off into the world. And what does it mean? I mean, people, a lot of people got into pretty intense speculation about, you know, is that literally Laura Palmer and what is the purpose for her being sent to earth? You know, mm-hmm. whatever is she, is that like, she's a symbol of goodness or is right. is she sure. sent out as basically like bait to lure out Bob or whatever, mm-hmm. whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but it ended up leading to some discussion on the, just about Laura Palmer as a character and where she lands in Twin Peaks that I thought was interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, do you mind if I just read a couple no, of these things? Um, Our friend JP says, I'm reluctant to take any symbol in this show, especially stuff that happens outside our reality, too literally, unless it's explicitly spelled out. Garmin Bosia is pain and sorrow, but it also looks like creamed corn as it's being eaten. When I saw the Laura face orb, for whatever reason, I didn't immediately assume that's Laura Palmer's soul being sent to Earth so she can become a human and have all that stuff happen to her. Uh, I took it as a sort of symbol of what her life meant, the coexistence of suffering and joy and, in the end, powerful defiance, and that's what was sent into our world, and maybe it has echoed in other people's lives besides Laura. Um, I thought that was an interesting sort of... Yeah, I I agree. I think there's something that is... Something occurred to me the other day that I think is worthwhile to think about when watching this, is there's a difference between... And and this is, I think, really related to how we have discussed David Lynch's use of visual effects Mm -hmm. uh, on this show and in his work generally, which is that there's a difference between what is being portrayed in the world that is the fictional world that's being depicted and what is being and how those things are being represented to us, the watching audience. Right. Right. So like the the use of video effects or something that take advantage of video or film as a medium, as a literal medium, like an actual physical process for representing art 
for our eyes to see. That is not necessarily one-to-one the same as what is happening in the sort of theoretical, intangible, Mm -hmm. fictional world that we're watching, right? So just because we as the audience are shown the face of Laura Palmer in this classic photo we've seen a million times doesn't necessarily mean that in some theoretical reality in which you're actually in that room with the giant and Dito and everything, that that's technically what you'd be seeing. It's not. I think it's not even worth trying to like parse that. Right? I think that we should for one second, though, yeah. because Marius on the forum writes in saying, uh, I'm only reading this because I think it's funny. Yeah. He said, the thing that bothers me the most is that they used Dolores' prom photo in that orb. <laughs> it feels so out of place. But then again, maybe the person who took the photo was also a supernatural being who jumped into the future to get a good profile pic for that orb. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's really good. Um, but let, no, I, let me try to say what I'm saying a different way because I, I don't know if I'm communicating it well. Like if you look at a cartoon, we all understand that the cartoon could be depicting something that we understand as like real and true. But we know obviously that no actual rabbit looks literally like Bugs Bunny does with brush strokes and mm-hmm. sort of a flat color shading and things like that. Right. We, we, we understand that. I think with film, we sort of take for granted that it's meant to be displaying things literally right but it's but that's we only think that because it just because of the way photography most of the time represents our world in largely the way our eye does but we shouldn't assume that just because we're dealing largely with photography that everything we're seeing is literally meant as a one-to-one reproduction of the things being depicted i think think that's important to remember yeah i think it's 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 easy to think about that in Twin Peaks as well when you look at a lot of the imagery that we've seen in what is known now, it seems fairly definitively, as The Lodge. I think fans and just audiences in general have a pretty easy time sort of holding in their mind, this probably isn't literally a giant and a woman in an old Hollywood theater watching a movie. All of these things are supposed to be sort of just a representation for our eyes on the television of maybe they're creatures or maybe they're just sort of nebulous presences or maybe it's an allegory. But then I think when you see Laura Palmer's face, it suddenly becomes harder to let it exist in that same nebulous space. Because it is something we've seen. Yeah, but you're saying we should take it in the same way that we're taking everything else in that space or I at least so. or at least give it give it as much I mean, rope poten- as you'd give potentially, that. Potentially, yeah. right, yeah. Yeah, yeah I, th- I think that's that's true. Um, <laughs> carrying on from that a bit, here's an email from Andrew who mm-hmm. writes, Hi, Chris and Jake. There's a lot to process with episode eight, but the 50s scenes with the boy and g- girl walking stood out to me. The way these scenes are filmed felt earnest in the way that 50s TV and film are. There's no flashy editing or camera work. The blocking is simple with an over-the-shoulder shot at its most complex, and all the lighting is diegetic. It's like Lynch was presenting us a nostalgia-tinted memory of the 50s. Between these scenes, there's the roadside encounter, which felt like if David Lynch had filmed the Hitchhiker episode of The Twilight Zone. It's still 50s in setting, but the electrical sounds and howling, the strobing lights, and the POV camera shots are a strong contrast of style. With all these scenes in the 50s, Lynch shows us a strong duality. This is a, a sincere and beautiful world of nostalgia, but also a world of evil alongside it. Because we recognize the tropes and see what there is to lose, the violence at the radio station is more horrific than anything else we've seen this season. I also felt there's more at stake with the girl and boy than any other character in recent episodes. Gordon and Albert haven't faced any danger, and Dougie can Mr. Magoo his way out of anything. I doubt we'll stay in the 50s long, but I hope there's more of this. Cheers, Andrew. Um, my my main reaction to that, I think, um, I mean, I think his thematic sort of points are interesting, but I, I really liked the observation of... Um, sort of the completeness of attention to uh, the era of film and television being referenced in the sort of era of the setting itself. Yeah, he very much hit sort of the styles of that era. Yeah, and the reason I think that is notable is because I think you can extend that out. I think we discussed this last week. I can't quite remember. um, To the uh, even older Hollywood style that can be perceived in the room with in this sort of like palace with um, the giant and Dito uh, and, you know, going all the we did discuss this last week because going all the way back to the purple room and the sort of out in space. Yeah. Um, you know, there's been a there's been a theme sort of running throughout Twin Peaks season three of as at the same time as we're sort of visiting the history of the world of Twin Peaks 
we're also taking a journey through a bunch of the history of film and television yeah. and broadcast media. Like Dr. Uh -huh. Jacoby's radio show was yep. that even in one scene where he had basically every possible era of audio and video uh -huh. equipment combined. I hadn't, I, the, the sort of old Hollywood sort of art deco, like flapper era stuff, I guess. And the, um, 1950s sci-fi or, and then also like really, really early 20th century sci-fi. Mm -hmm. Those touchstones are, really obvious because they call a lot of attention to themselves. Um, so I wanted to tack on that 50s one too. Yeah, that, that, cool. that 50s stuff also just felt like such a like primary classic ass David Lynch touchstone to me too. Like of yeah. just in some of the cleanest way of just earnest mid-century Americana with basically just a weird dank sewer of creepiness <laughs> running underneath it. Just yeah. We haven't gotten that to such a pure level in season three yet. Mm -hmm. I guess true. maybe I guess some of the stuff with um, Shelley's daughter and wispy mustache mm. guy oh, was sure. like, but that yeah, felt yeah, like yeah, that yeah. was almost like Twin Peaks folding in on itself. Twin Peaks the sequel, whereas this right. felt more like yeah. finding a new vein of the same yeah. sort of stuff that the, the first season of Twin Peaks and things like Blue Velvet are coming from. Yeah, that that shot with uh, with those characters in the convertibles. Yeah. It's almost like from a version of this show in which we got Twin Peaks Redux, the Twin Peaks: The New Generation. Yeah, you know where it's, yeah. it's a more intense, boiled down version of you know, all those characters and themes. I wonder how much the much has been said about the fact that Twin Peaks season three was intended to be nine episodes when it was first announced, or eight, some some number that is about half of what we got, and how like oh David Lynch has been able to sort of stretch his legs and they were able to stretch the scripts and stretch the pace of the storytelling out. Yeah. That said, they must have filmed so much more than what I know, is released. I know. And I, I was wondering like, are we going to end up getting Twin Peaks, the return, the missing pieces that is like yeah. another 18 bet, hours of I, stuff. Probably not 18 hours, but I bet we will get something like, like that. There's no way they didn't shoot yeah. tons of footage of the classic cast of Twin Peaks that we're yeah. just not seeing. Well, and there's, you there know? are interviews at this point. I mean, there are interviews with just about everybody involved in this season i mean even starting before the season began and so many of them said things like oh it's just so great to be back you know shooting with david and doing and, and i'm like what <laughs> based on what for your like two like, minutes that we've yeah, seen of you yeah, yeah. or zero yeah yeah i mean which obviously we've only seen half the thing there's more right. to see but I, you have to i i've been assuming the same thing that you're saying even if there are there now must have been more footage yeah there's shot. there's what there's still 10 hours of this show left which is insane yeah, yeah. um but even still we're Basically at the halfway point, and yeah, there just ha there has to be more, and I don't know, you know, if there's the, if there's sort of the budget or time or desire or intent to release it, but I hadn't thought about that really until right now when you said, oh, you know, we got that. It's almost like we got a slice of Twin Peaks: The Next Generation, like a fake, you know that, and and it made me think, holy crap, they probably actually have yeah. whole episodes <laughs> of those characters' arcs yeah. in the can, or like yeah, I, I bet, bet there's there's at least an episode worth of mm -hmm. weird just yeah. them doofing around being being teens with bad lives that mm -hmm. we that we may not ever see. Yeah, yeah, um, I bet. There's no way to know right now, yeah. but I bet, I bet. It just it feels so much like this show was put together and found in the editing room from a lot of different concepts. Yep. Um, I want to jump back a little bit to um, just to, to toss in some quick observations from a mm -hmm. couple of readers about uh, some of this sort of Laura Bob, um, okay, you know, sort of thematic stuff. So Rachel writes, "Hey guys, enjoying the podcast and finding it a helpful companion to the new season." Um, I keep going back to season two, episode nine, after it's revealed that Leland killed Laura. At one point, um, someone asks Coop, who is Bob? And Coop, re Coop responds that he thinks Bob is, quote, the evil that men do. Simple and clear and absolutely true interpretation at that point. After Sunday's episode, we see one of the most evil acts that men can do when we witness the nuclear destruction. Um, perhaps the nuclear blast was what brought Bob to this earth or released him in a way he was able to bring havoc to Twin Peaks. We'll see. Only time will tell. Keep up the good work, Rachel. Um, so obviously a lot of people have um, sort of theorized about all kinds of things with the nuclear blast and what it means. Is Bob born? Is Bob sort of called by it? Is he an older entity? Who knows? Um, but I wanted to make sure to um, get on the record that sort of just like thing that was mentioned way back in season two of Twin Peaks, that sort of very direct, clear Bob is maybe Bob is the evil that men do. Yep. Um because that is a, it's, as she says, it's a very sort of elemental, straightforward, um, like, summation of that character that is good, just good to keep in mind, I guess. Yeah, it, that nuclear blast felt like you could hang 
both that sort of season two thing on it and also the fire walk with me notion of these of all of these sort of creatures that exist in dreams or in the in the lodge being beings that feed on human pain and suffering on Garmin mm-hmm. Bosia and yeah. that nuclear blast just basically being an unprecedented like dam break right. of right, right, human right, right. pain and suffering happen yeah. like yeah. it is it is both of those things and i and yeah it's mm-hmm. in terms of people calling back to things from the uh, from the original run that are relevant here i mm-hmm. think adam forfang writes could the building on top of the Rocky Peak be the White Lodge? The interior sure looks like some kind of white marble Freemasonic Lodge. Also, during the sequence of the giant turning off the bell-shaped alarm, time seems to be moving backwards. Um, and he calls back to Major Briggs' description here, uh, which is the, this, the, the mm. sort of thing to call back to. There, this was a vision fresh and clear as a mountain stream, the mind revealing itself to itself. In my vision, I was on the veranda of a vast estate, a palazzo of some fantastic proportion. There seemed to emanate from it a light from within, this gleaming, radiant marble. I'd known this place. I had, in fact, been born and raised there. This was my first return, a reunion with the deepest wellsprings of my being. Wandering around, I noticed happily that the house had been immaculately maintained. There had been added a number of additional rooms, but in a way that blended so seamlessly with the original construction, one would never detect any difference. Returning to the house's grand foyer, there came a knock at the door. My son was standing there. He was happy and carefree, clearly living a life of deep harmony and joy. We embraced a warm and loving embrace, nothing withheld. We were in this moment one. My vision ended, and I woke with a tremendous feeling of optimism and confidence in you and your future. That was my vision of you. I'm so glad to have had this opportunity to share it with you. I wish you nothing but the very best in all things. Thanks, Adam Forfang. And then my severed head flew by in space, and I said, <laughs> "Blue rose." Yep. <laughs> yeah. Um, so there's just a few like little touchstones in there. Obviously, the whole speech is bigger and sort of yeah. dealing with things that are not necessarily here, but there are also what a good speech that is. It's also just great. It's also just so, so good. And Don Davis delivers that so well. It's unbelievable, yeah. Oh, so good. Yeah. Yeah, there are a couple little touchstones there, and it, it, I, I f- find it hard to believe that David Lynch would consider those two things one and the same, but I wouldn't put it past Mark Frost to mm. have in his mind that, that, sure. that one is, that there's, those are one and one, but I also, that's me just yeah, that's putting things too. onto yeah, other people. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I wish that I had gone back and re- and reread the original script to the season finale of season two because mm-hmm. that screenplay we talked about that in um, in our episode about the season finale of Twin Peaks season two that script and the way that Mark Frost writes the Black Lodge and sort of its inner workings and all the different set pieces and the f- different ways that it's treated feel so close to season three as opposed to what David Lynch did at the end of season two. It's really strange. Like he just describes there being what seems like lots of architectural variety and set pieces that are not the red room and it is in black and white at points and it's not and stuff. And yeah, I, that's whenever it goes to black and white or whenever a character walks from one space to the other and just the setting completely changes and they just meet a new character who is a weird amalgam of other characters or suddenly a, a piece of genre pastiche shows up it, it feels it feels like it's a callback to to that unfilmed script more than yeah. anything else yeah, but that's interesting it could just be that those are ideas that have been lingering in sure. their brains sort of just sure. in their subconscious for decades having you know having committed them to page but then never filming them yeah yeah we never saw Wyndham Earl and Bob as a dentist, though, which I believe was uh, <laughs> was in there. I think Bob Bob was like drilling Wyndham Earl's teeth or something oh, man, ridiculous. Amazing. I, I forgot about that. Um, well, here's a here's to sort of st- step back another few feet, you know, down f- um, from from these really specific comparisons and observations. Uh, Hansel writes. Hey guys, love the podcast. I was wondering if you wanted to discuss the pacing of the show, particularly in relation to the increased episode order. Um, so Jake, you sort of were actually getting talking I, about this a bit yeah. before. So I love a nice drawn out David Lynch scene like the room service waiter from the start of season two and have no problem with slower paced media in general. But knowing Showtime increased the episode order from nine to 18, it's colored my viewing of this season. I increasingly had the feeling that Lynch and Frost didn't bother adding anything to their original 400-page script. You can see that in the seemingly endless Dougie Jones scenes or the drawn-out aftermath of the hit-and-run or the interminable sweeping scene. Actually, scratch that last one. That was just maybe Lynch having a laugh. 
This has resulted in some of the more plot-related story threads being so spaced out that we end up forgetting about them. You see this particularly with the Buckhorn murder and the drug investigations in Twin Peaks. Does anybody remember Deputy Bobby Briggs and his camera set up to capture drug smugglers? How about Shelley's daughter Becky, who people were speculating was this season's Laura Palmer? Maybe feeding us tiny bits of these stories with large gaps in between them was part of the original plan, another way Lynch was blowing up conventional TV and making an 18-hour movie. If we had never heard of the increased episode order, would anyone be bothered by the pacing of season three, which is otherwise quite brilliant? Does it bother you, Hansel? So even though we've talked about this a bit, I wanted to read this because it's a really good reminder of some of these plot threads that we have not seen in many hours of screen time, yep. including uh, the Buckhorn murder, which if you, I mean, so there are bits of the Buckhorn murder that still, that obviously are s- still relevant to um, what's going on now, especially the um, the f- fingerprints and the- you Major, know, Briggs's b- Major Briggs' body. Major body, but there are, <laughs> if you think about Bill the actual Hastings Bill Hastings is, yeah, he's still rotting in jail right now yeah. for like weeks. I mean, and not only that, but there was a Woodsman character- in jail, yeah. I mean, it's you know, we now have just seen a bunch of woodsmen. Yeah, um, the, there. I mean, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, but the longer we get into this, my worries about this are actually kind of going away mm-hmm. because I do, like you just said, it. Well, it's true that Bill Hastings is sitting in jail, and we haven't seen that thread in a long time. The fact that the camera panned over from him and we saw a woodsman character there. And that was the first time that character was introduced. And now we have an episode full of that character. We still don't know what that character means, but even seeing him and I guess them this week made my brain jump back because actually the three things we just said all had woodsman characters in them. Major Briggs's body was the second time that we saw that character show up. Um, oh, right. Of course. Yeah. 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 Uh, Lieutenant Knox, I think mm-hmm. it was. Yeah. When she was on the phone, there was a woodsman creeping along in the background and she was sort of unnerved yeah. by its presence. It it makes it all at least feel like there is a method to the madness. Yeah, definitely. Um, For sure. But yeah, there are, I'm sure, threads that I just cannot, cannot for the life of me recall. Like that... <laughs> The, the the Bobby Briggs thing, I have yeah. no memory of. I know. Right? I just yeah. any anything that he has done within the rest of that episode was completely erased from my brain by him seeing Laura's mm-hmm. photo and crying. Um, yeah, I try to erase from my mind the knowledge of the of the production and of the announcements in the lead up to the show because I I do sometimes feel that pull of thinking, geez, what if this was nine episodes long? Would it have, right. would it have I been cut? I think it's already come up in this episode. Yeah, would it have been cut more tightly? Would it have felt like Twin Peaks more? Mm-hmm. I, I, There's no way for us to know. Yeah. It's, yeah. And we don't know what would have been cut or what was added. Yeah. And yeah, I, I also just remain convinced that by, when the season finale comes out and we can see the sh- this season from the beginning of it to the end of it, even if it doesn't go that way, even if it doesn't go away that, I entirely understand or like maybe that I like I who knows right we're a ways away I think though that being able to sort of roll through the season a second time or a third time though that feeling will will not be anywhere near as present it's sort of like when you take a road trip somewhere and it seems like it takes three times longer than the trip back because you've just driven down the road before and you you can sort of feel the landmarks coming up ahead of you and go, okay, well, there, okay, I drove past that lake. That means that there's going to be a gas station in a little bit. And that means that there's going to be that weird funky town that we drove through that I made fun of. <laughs> and those, when you're on the, that trip for the first time, those things feel so disconnected because you can't see the road ahead of you. And I've at least personally at this point spent the good part of a decade knowing the entire road of Twin Peaks. And sure, it's, you know, yeah, yeah. You haven't actually... Because you didn't finish watching it. I hadn't seen. I hadn't seen what turned out to be like the last yeah. two episodes, but I had yeah. seen Fire Walk with me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, that's true. I <laughs> there was that one missing piece, the missing pieces. Yes, true. It was those missing pieces. Um, here's a just a a, a wacky email to toss in. Um, Amidst these uh, longer considerations, Justin McElroy writes, my wife, Sydney, had a random thought as we were trying to sleep after that episode of TV. Could could the uh, woodsmen have taken the form of owls in the first Twin Peaks run? We know they're not what we what they seem. I don't know. Who knows? That is a wild theory. (laughs) I I read that because we we get so little of that kind of. 
like totally um, like perpendicular speculation. Yeah. Um, but it's also something I could very much see David Lynch being very pleased about. I mean, they are the characters who have just constantly shown up ominously in the background of scenes and made people look at them and then be unnerved the same way that owls yeah. do. Although we had one slow motion strobed owl fly across the sky in season three so far, which was oh, when, true, yeah. when Dougie first gets mm-hmm. back to his house with the red door, there's an owl. You're right. Um, I'd also seen people speculate that the woodsmen actually have a very specific tie to Twin Peaks, which is that they were uh, they were six people, like six actual woodsmen who I think were people who cut lumber for the mill who died in a fire that is referenced in the secret right. history of Twin Peaks. Yes. Uh, yes. Yes, that is important. Uh, or, or is it? It's probably important. I, I imagine so, right? Uh, Do you think... Did, does was uh, the log lady's husband one of those people? I should oh, know this information. Man, I don't remember because maybe he's the woodsman. Wouldn't that be terrible? That would be crazy. <laughs> um, You're right. It wouldn't be terrible, but it would be very strange. It would be weird. It would. I mean, I I don't know. <laughs> remember that time where the ghost of of the log lady's husband transported through time and then <laughs> killed a radio DJ and said a bunch yeah. of stuff about a horse and then later was also an owl. <laughs> Uh, I guess that's why she would know. They're not what they seem. Yeah. My husband is it's not It's my what husband, he seems. the log, the woodsman, the owl. <laughs> um, so he's, he's just launching off of, of into something even more ridiculous. Ben, uh, ben Skip writes Does this mean that the Laura Palmer we see at the beginning of each episode is literal? It's actually her giant golden head launched in the 1950s from the purple space about to descend into North America. <laughs> Uh, actually, the answer is yes. I totally conclusively that too. yes. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, I almost brought that up last episode. <laughs> that that orb flying off into space totally looks like the orb, yeah. like the face of the introduction. Yeah. yeah. The introduction it's just taken her a really long time to to get there. The intro to season three of Twin Peaks, I am, I like more and more with every episode yeah. that we go by in the season. Just yeah. like, even like, uh, I, I don't know if it was someone on the forums, but. S- or someone in the Idle Thumbs Reader Slack or in an email, but someone pointed out, because I was talking about the floor of the sort of black and white place that uh, the giant and what's the other character's name? Dido. Yeah. The the, the giant and and Dido hangout and how it sort of looked maybe like the sort of crumpled velvet curtain that you would see in the opening credits of an old like like 50s or 60s like Technicolor melodrama. Uh-huh. And then someone pointed out that we literally see the image of sort of a rippling velvet curtain in the opening of the season now when it crossfades yeah. from the waterfall. But the curtains of Twin Peaks or of the Red Room are never presented in that aesthetic yeah. un- until now. Right. Like, I don't know. Yeah. Um, I'm going to, uh, Ben's email actually continues with a different thing that then Jake is wrong I about the curtains. I want to jump off on further now. <laughs> Um, so Ben continues, also the Bob Frog bug is another prime example of how Lynch treats CG as another tool to be used. That thing was super creepy in a very realistic way. Any thoughts about how he combined this with the most extreme example of Lynch- Lynch's 50s affection? Is there anything in how Lynch uses very incongruous tools and settings? In the sleek New York apartment, it's the ridiculous video effects that killed the kids. In the 50s, actual black and white footage, it's the very detailed CG effect that is the threat. I haven't thought enough about it to know if this holds water. Love the show. James is cool. Ben Skip. Um, I thought that was just a a good sort of... I don't think there's any... Well, I shouldn't say that. I don't have any very specific claims to make about what that means, but I think it is is notable that Lynch feels free to completely mix and match um, the sort of couching of the effect and the type of effect used. Yeah, I I did like that. I mean, we've we had someone else point out that the 1950s stuff felt very classic cinema and was obeying all the rules of sort of the camera capturing a realistic representation of the world and inside of that space the effects work was also it, it matched that style. It just mm-hmm. it just lends so much more to I think the just to to all of the all of those choices being completely mm-hmm. completely deliberate. Yeah, I agree. Um, and so, uh, picking up on the bug, uh, there's a an email from Kara who writes, "Hello, one of my favorite Lynch works is a short film of sorts included as a DVD extra on Inland Empire." In uh, by the way, the Inland Empire DVD has a ton of good 
extras. So cool. just keep that in mind. Uh, anyway, she continues, in which David Lynch cooks a meal of quinoa and also tells a story. It's a great watch on its own. Not joking, it is one of my favorite Lynch works. But there's a moment about halfway through where Lynch is in the middle of the story. I've seen this quinoa bit a dozen times without ever knowing what frog moths could refer to. So seeing the creature in episode eight, I right, I right away recognized it as a very literal frog moth. Huh. Yeah, there's this like 20 minute, I don't know, Jake, if you've ever watched this. Mm-mm. There's a 20 minute video of David Lynch who starts off being like, I'm going to... I'll show you how to cook quinoa or whatever. And he literally okay. is like there cooking quinoa on the stove. And it just keeps going. It goes for 20 minutes and he tells this incredibly long, rambly story that just goes on and on and on and on and gets weird and very lynchy. And, and he also, in a, almost immediately after mentioning this frog moth in the middle of this quinoa story, he also mentions a small copper coin okay. and he like, gives the coin to someone and then he gets stuff in return. So there's like very specific, um, very, very specific uh, imagery referenced in this long rambly Inland Empire DVD quinoa story that is actually represented on screen uh, in uh, in episode eight of Twin Peaks. Crazy. Return. Yeah. Anyway, she ends, this probably doesn't offer much of hint or clarification towards anything, Kara. <laughs> 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 Probably true, but it is a weird thing. And if you search for David Lynch quinoa, you will find you can find this on YouTube. Very, there's a bunch of different uploads of it on YouTube. Uh, so, <laughs> you know that guy. Um, he Eric, was just planting planting seeds for fans to track going back that far. Yeah, yeah. I don't. That's not how that works. Uh, Eric writes, "How did Ray manage to get his hands on a gun?" How did Ray manage to get his hands on a gun? Yeah, I have no idea. I don't know how he tricked him. Fucker, or whatever he says. Yeah, how did he trick you, fucker? Huh. Yeah. Why are there two guns? Right? I mean, it's like it would make sense if he was able to somehow, like, coop. Maybe he also made a deal with the warden reason, and I want a friend in the passenger side uh, door. Yeah, shelf I mean, thing. all I can think of is that he did somehow make a superseding deal with the warden, which he guaranteed, <laughs> I will kill this guy. If you, like, for my freedom, I will tie up your loose ends. I like that guy. they both, though, specifically requested that a friend be hidden in a specific <laughs> location, and the warden's like, what? What why is do you, why these do you both guys? guys? Why do you both say this? Do you talk about this? <laughs> yes, their words. <laughs> these guys must just hang out all the time because they have the I same want, manner of speech. I want you to disarm his friend, and I want my own friend. <laughs> my friend will be the superior friend, warden. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I was wondering that as well. I didn't care because I was so shocked to see uh, Cooper just get blown away by that oh, guy. to get tricked, fucker? Yeah, guy, I didn't expect him to get tricked, fucker. Yeah. Alan writes, hey, Jake and Chris. Hey. Episode eight of this season of the show has led to me thinking a lot about the term Lynchian and specifically how we as the audience respond to and enjoy things that fall under that umbrella. What exactly does the word Lynchian mean for the two of you and where do you think that definition came from? Everyone I ask says episode eight was, quote, one of the most Lynchian things they've ever seen, even though to me it felt like it bared very little resemblance to the structure of the rest of the series. I know this comes more from some of his films and how they handle the portrayal of the surreal, but Lynchian to me has always been a very flexible term. I guess my main question is what the heck is it that viewers enjoy about Lynch's works? Is it seeing abstract visuals that convey deep lore engaging as a viewer because it's different? Or do we, do we, do we like the quirkiness that comes from the characters acting abnormally because people don't often act the way Lynch characters do? Anyway, love the podcast and all the work you both do. Here's to more Lynchian nonsense, whatever that may mean. Alan from Massachusetts. Um, Didn't that word come from David Foster Wallace? Oh, I don't know. Maybe. I mean, it's a construction that is easy that to he... imagine a number of people sort of independently coining, right? Because we we do that for so many artists. Yeah. I had thought that the first place that, that was written was a David Foster Wallace essay on one of Lynch's films. But I... Right. I was, it was on set, right? He Didn't he interview him on set? That's a great essay. I, it's been a long time since I've read it, but uh, you should read David Foster Wallace on David Lynch because it's a f- just a fantastic... Uh, oh, yeah. He, I think he, it was David Foster Wallace on the set of Lost Highway. That's right. That's right. Yeah. It's um, David Lynch Keeps His Head okay. by David Foster Wallace. Uh, I believe really worth, really worth reading. Anyway, I personally don't, I, I'm sure I have 
broken this self-imposed rule on this podcast, but I, I really try not to use the word Lynchian because I think it's one of those things that has been diluted so much by people essentially using it to mean like wacky or creepily weird in a very in a way that is so broad that any potential specificity as relates to the very specific tendencies of a very specific director are sort of lost. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, I think when we, at least I have tried when we describe something as uh, coming from Lynch's sensibility, I have tried and I think we tried generally to couch that by specifically painting comparisons to other Lynch works or to tendencies that we think can be drawn by connecting points to form a line or how, he, or how he's drawing from something else and what we think he might be interpreting right, or whatever. Right. Yeah. But I, I think the general like, oh, it's just so weird. It's like David Lynch is so just like so weird. It just doesn't make sense. It's weird. Um, I think is often where that that phrase boils down to. And I kind of yeah. try to steer clear of it. The good faith version of it, I think, is is trying to get at some of the stuff that we were also trying to get at earlier in terms of things not always being what they seem and aesthetics being used in a different differently than standard f- way that film and television will use images as purely representations of real life that mm-hmm. he seems to have no qualms with yeah. throwing that out the window when it seems like it's appropriate for the plot or for a character's no, no, point no. of view or whatever. Like a- Absolutely, th- but I'm saying, but I don't think simply saying Lynchian is sufficient shorthand to communicate what you just said. That's that's fair enough. I think that, I just think when people are using it in good faith, that's what they're getting at, but I, I think you're right that okay. it doesn't necessarily communicate right. that to the saying. degree that people want because, as you said, that word is kind of just a vessel for people to put whatever their interpretation of David Lynch is into it. It's it's a it's an empty word. Yeah. I mean it's just been beat to death, I yeah. think. Yeah. Do I have anything else that is prepped here? Here's one from Stin who writes, Hey Chris and Jake, it strikes me that this season for Lynch is what the color of money was for Martin Scorsese. A deeply deeply personal reflection of the artist on his place in the modern artistic environment. Cooper as Dougie strikes me as an expression of how Lynch's works have been received overall. Messages being transmitted without true understanding or even complete communication. Dougie's audience, even his most ardent supporters, don't, won't, or can't perceive what he's getting at and continue to go along with the flow. Bad Coop's use of technology to distort, confuse, or disrupt other types of communication feel like a reflection on modern technology and the communication breakdown therein. Twin Peaks and its characters are likewise an aging populace stuck in one spot, fulfilling roles they already inhabited or falling into roles that keep them relatively static. Along with the teens watching The Box, which seems to be a thesis statement of the series, and the revelations in Episode 8 as an origin story for the entire series, and the many parallels to all of Lynch's works throughout this season, the return seems to be Lynch responding artistically to what the world around him has become and how he sees himself in it. Thanks for the podcast, Stin. I think that is a really interesting take. I strongly suspect David Lynch is not consciously doing any of that, um, or if he is, would absolutely never admit to it. Right. Um my sense of David Lynch from, you know, reading many interview, interviews and watching many videos is that he really resists um, sort of that kind of symbolism on a on such a direct level. But I think one of the things that makes him a strong and powerful director is the ability for his work to serve as a sort of screen for us, the audience, to project our um, our uh, sort of interpretation of our, our reality and, and world onto. That second part is actually also a thing that David Lynch is very clear that he's okay with. Like yes, when people when people yeah. say, did you do this because it meant that? Like people have asked, I think even specifically about the glass box being a, a reflection of TV culture. And he says, well, that's not that's not what I intended. I wasn't aiming specifically for that. But if that's what that means to you and you find that interesting, that's great. Like, yeah. I'm glad that you can, you know, he's, he seems he seems pleased or neutral that people can look at his work and through the filter of their own mind, they can divine meanings and symbols and correlations. But it seems like, yeah, like he, he's never coming at it from that angle. Or yeah, like you said, if he is, he doesn't say it. But mm-hmm. I... I like that he doesn't disparage people for yes. having their own personal interpretation mm-hmm. of their of his work and instead seems to encourage it and and enjoy that people will tell him what they what they got out of it. Yep. Yeah, this reminds me actually of a of I was I was talking to my wife Sarah recently because we were seeing a movie at 
we were seeing a movie at the Alamo Drafthouse, and there was a trailer for, I think, Night of the Living Dead. I forget which Romero zombie movie it was. I believe it was Night of the Living Dead because um, they're they're showing it at some screening. And, and she was sort of ob- observing that, you know, George A. Romero made, he made Night of the Living Dead, Dawn of the Dead, and Day of the Dead, and um, often is sort of, uh, those movies are often cited as being really amazing examples of sort of each uh, being a perfect kind of summation of, of many of society's um, sort of fears and preoccupations at the time at which each of those films was released. And when Romero is presented with those interpretations, his response is like, oh, I wasn't really doing that on purpose. I was just trying to make these like effective horror films. And I, th- I you know, I, I, I think often the works that feel like the most emblematic of their time or of their creator or of their sort of social context or uh, sort of place of creation or whatever are often not the ones that set out explicitly to achieve that, but they're the ones whose creators are just sort of um, by virtue of their own sensibility infused with that context yep. and setting. And it, and I think it's all the more that makes the result all the m- more powerful, I think, than works that are intentionally designed as explicit allegory. Yeah, I, like I I really like all of the writing that people have done about the potential sort of symbolic resonance of those two young people watching the glass box. But I yeah, I I also highly doubt that Frost and Lynch were like, we're going to skewer the shit out of modern TV binge viewing culture or whatever. Yeah. Olav writes, hi, the music when the dark men swarm after Ray shoots Cooper is the bee's knees. In my opinion, one of the stylistically most groundbreaking features of the of the show so far. So dry and hopeless. A solo piano with static pitched way down. Can you imagine the music any other show would use in a scene like this? Yes, you can. Thanks for a great show. Yours truly, the Norwegians. <laughs> um, that I wanted to mention for a couple of reasons. One is someone on the Idol forums uh, actually sped up that scene to reveal that that music is a solo piano performance of Beethoven's Moonlight Sonata, yeah. which is one of the just most well-known and frequently performed pieces in the in the piano canon. Yep, um, which was just a weird, cool thing to hear. Um, and also, I think in, in general, this email highlights how weird and unexpected and unusual the use of music has been on this se- season as a whole. Yeah, it's been. It's been something else. Mm-hmm. We're, we're, you and I were talking the other day about how impossible it would be to produce an original soundtrack album for this. Season, yeah, at least so far. <laughs> yeah, in and like in the same way that there probably is a ton of footage of this season on the cutting room floor. I would not be surprised if Bad Lamenti made a bunch of music that we're never going to hear, or if we mm-hmm. hear it will be in a very weird way in many years from now. Yep. Yeah, the way that the visuals of this show from sort of scene to scene or story thread to story thread are all over the map. The music scape is as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think it's really interesting. Yeah. I mean, a lot of the sourced music is sort of, in some cases, more obvious than I... <laughs> it's really than weird. I think the... could be interesting. Like, it feels like there could be some room there, but there's also a Even lot when of... Even when you get Take 5 and Green Onions and yeah. Moonlight Sonata? Yeah, yeah. Like... But, but again, like the usage of Moonlight Sonata, for instance... I learned like, all three of those in piano lessons as a kid. <laughs> That's so funny. I probably did too, actually. Yeah. Um, that's so funny. But yeah, I mean, but the exception there obviously is Moonlight Sonata, which is presented in a way that is unrecognizable yeah. in the moment. And, and and in fact, there is other, I mean, there's modern pop music that to which he does that, right? I mean, in the, uh, yeah. the first time we see Bad Coop driving along in his car, uh, we're getting a just sort of modern vocal pop song right. that has been slowed down to an unrecognizable tempo. And then- there is some bad lamenty stuff that's new that's been he- scattered here and there. Yeah. There's just the occasional, uh, like when Andy is waiting to meet the guy in who owned the pickup truck. There's some like classic Twin Peaks music mm-hmm. right there. Or when Laura Palmer's face shows up, we just get her theme on full blast. And then, or there's things like the oh yeah, when, 20th century, 20th century yeah, art music. Yeah, yeah, when the bomb goes off. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a Penderesque, Penderetsky. I as I incorrectly pronounced as Penderecki, many people corrected me, especially in the YouTube comments. Sorry about that. Got that wrong. That's what a, that's what, that's what a music degree will get you. Nothing, Nothing. <laughs> You'll have learned how to play Green Onions as a kid. Yeah. Yep. 
and then mispronounce a composer. Mm-hmm. Uh, here's an interesting email that I think is worthwhile to throw out there. Okay. Christopher writes, hey guys, I've been hearing a lot of people say they couldn't see Bob's face coming out of Bad Coop's body, the eggs in Mother's Vomit and Garmin Bosia, and other visual details. It might be a good time for everyone to check their TV settings during the mid-season break. Calibrating your TV will make every bit of content you watch appear that much better. And uh, he has a link to a guide from a site called rtings.com. I guess it's okay. sort of ratings without the A in it. Okay. So if you search for rtings, how to calibrate your TV, you will find Christopher's cool. recommended guides. That's the other reason that I'm really excited for this season to be over so I can buy it on Blu-ray. This episode yes. in particular, because yes. I, I think yes. I don't have Showtime the TV network, I have Showtime anytime, Me the too. streaming service, yes. and my internet is not bad. I can get the show in HD just fine, but it's n- it's nowhere near as clean as watching Twin Peaks The Complete Mystery on Blu-ray, which is just the most pristine presentation. Mm-hmm. And I can tell from stills from people who either have images that are released from the press or uh, have a very good, like, are pulling it off of the highest quality cable broadcast or whatever. This show looks so nice. Yeah. And especially last week with all of those crazy aggressive explosions and the weird red dots trailing by and the really, really, really dark color grading of the scene when Ray shoots Bad Coop. There was stuff that was just turning into just nasty MPEG compression throughout the episode. Sad. (laughs) I had to back it up a couple times actually when Bob's face came up Mm. uh, on that weird face out of Bad Coop because the first time, like my streaming hit a hitch, and it was oh, like, and it was just like, garbage, just low res. I, like, I think yeah. that was Bob's face. What? And then yeah. I backed up, and my stream rebuffered, and it was really clean for a second. And I went, "Oh, geez, that's Bob." Yeah. And it made me go, "Give me those Blu-rays." I know. Give me, I, give, I me that, give me any, that 4K Blu-ray. I haven't had any <laughs> hitches or anything, but even at the best of times, just the color banding in in dark yeah, scenes this, is just a disaster. It's this sad. this show. I mean, there are some scenes that that look like they could have fallen out of the original Twin Peaks or like they could have come out of Fire Walk With Me but there's also a lot of places where Lynch and his cinematographer and color grading uh, person are playing with incredibly low contrast imagery mm-hmm. and yeah. that just dies in streaming TV yep um, alright well we could I mean we could go for hours more with the amount of email and forum posts we have but um, do you want to wrap it up there where it's yeah. already a long-ish episode yeah. for us. Yeah. Um, thanks everyone for writing in with stuff and thanks for continuing to write in and talk about the show on the forums. It's been it's been really fun going through Twin Peaks Season 3 with a big sort of community. Also, to everyone else who's doing Twin Peaks podcasts and who's doing Twin Peaks write-ups, like it's just been it's been really fun mm-hmm. sort of watching all that stuff and reading it and listening to it. Uh, along with everyone else. Yeah, I agree. I never would have expected to have this experience. Yeah, it's really strange. It's been really fun. So, yes, thank you for listening to our show. If you do like it, uh, pass it on. uh, Share it with with friends. We're all figuring this stuff out together, or rather not figuring any of it out, but, you know, learning things and sharing observations. It's been really fun. You can write us email yourself uh, about the remaining episodes in in the series as they air by writing to twinpeaks at idlethumbs.net. Our website is twinpeaksrewatch.com, and it has our contact information and information about the show and how to subscribe to it on there. Um, And uh, on that, we will be back in just a few days for discussion of Twin Peaks, The Return, Part 9. Final Thumbs, I'm Chris Remo. I'm Jake Rodkin. Bye. 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 